Man, I love that song. Anybody with me on that? Godzilla. That song is so good. I love the, uh, I love that part where it says, let us become more aware of his presence. Let us become more aware of his presence. I think that the truth for every believer, every person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, in order to walk in a daily walk with him so that it impacts and affects and challenges and changes every aspect, corner of your life, I think that it is a constant, consistent reminder and a constant and consistent awareness of the presence of God in your life. Because one of the coolest things about being a follower of Jesus is that the Bible tells us we are now placed into the family of God. We now have the Spirit of God that lives and dwells in us, the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, that we've been placed in Christ and we have been filled by this Holy Spirit. So it is impossible for us to walk a single day of our life without the presence of God being there, being uh, right in the moment of everything that we're doing. And that is one of the most amazing, unbelievable, incredible truths about what we believe as followers of Jesus. That God doesn't just save us by his grace through Jesus so that we don't go to hell, but God saves us through Jesus so that we can now live the full life that he has for us through him by placing his spirit in us so that every day we can walk into a, in, in awareness of his presence. How freaking awesome is that? That is something to celebrate. And we just praise God that we get that we get that in our lives. And tonight, I want to, uh, tonight, uh, I want to talk to you guys about, about a new series that we're going to be starting. It's called uh, Truth, The Truth Between Us. And the idea behind this came up where I've been praying, and I always like to pray about the series that we're going to do, because I want our ministry to be spirit-led. I want our ministry to be, to take it to where God wants us to take it, where it's not just like all of us trying to figure out, all right, what would be cool to do this week, and what would be fun to do this week, and what would be good to talk about, and what do people want to hear about, and all that kind of stuff. I don't operate that way. I go to my prayer closet. I go and get with God, and I say, God, what is it that our students need to hear? What is it that we need to talk about? Where is it we need to go? And the truth is, uh, I've met with all the other youth pastors, and we have laid out the sermon series already for next year through May, and I'm so pumped about this next school year. But man, God was just silent on what we were going to talk about this summer in our high school ministry. <clears throat> and uh, about a week ago uh, or so, I was on vacation over uh, Memorial Day weekend, and I'm hanging out at the lake, and man, it just... It just came out of nowhere, and, and just over and over again, God just kept confirming it in my heart that, hey, listen, this is what you're going to talk about this summer. This summer, you are going to address the truth between us. You are going to talk about Christianity and Jesus and how that relates to other religions, beliefs, and systems and philosophies around the world. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take about four or five weeks on this journey, and I'm going to hit some of the most common, some of the most prevalent, some of the ones that you guys encounter the most when you're at school or in your personal lives or things like that. We're going to hit those over this summer. Now, there's two that I think are pretty prominent that we're not going to address this summer, and that's atheism and agnosticism. And the reason that we're not going to address atheism and agnosticism this summer is because in September, we're going to be doing this big question series. I'm not going to tell you what we're doing along with it because it's going to be freaking crazy 
awesome. But we're going to be doing this big questions thing, and I'm going to be addressing atheism and agnosticism and evolution and all that kind of stuff in those four weeks. And so I don't want to hit that this summer. But I do want to talk about some of these things because I think they're important as you engage in conversations with people. And the hope is that we would be able to learn the truth of, through God's Word, and we would be able to share it with people so that they can know the truth. Because the Bible tells us clearly that you can know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And so tonight, we're going to talk about Jesus and Islam. Christianity and Islam. And if you have your notes there, everyone should have them. You should uh, pull out a pen and take some notes tonight because uh, uh, you're gonna, there's going to be some good stuff that we're going to be talking about. And I think I want to begin this conversation tonight and kind of use what I'm about to say as sort of a caveat that follows us next week as well as we talk about Mormonism, the following week as we talk about Catholicism, and later on as we talk about Buddhism and other things. And, uh, and I think that, that what I want to really, I want to approach this from this standpoint. I want us to take a delicate look, a delicate look at different world religions, philosophies, ideals, and I want to approach it in a delicate way because the truth is that there are real people in this world, billions of people, who hold to these beliefs, who hold to these things as truths, that, that these things actually shape every aspect of their life. Their entire life is, is affected by this. You realize that a devout Muslim every single day takes time out of their day five times a day to pray towards Mecca. That affects Every aspect of your life, during that time of day, you stop whatever you're doing, no matter what you're doing, to posture yourself before God. I mean, this affects their life. This affects all of their lives. And so I want us to take a delicate look at this because I think that what happens is sometimes when we engage in these conversations, it becomes like you against me, me against you type of situation. And, and what I've learned is, is that in these conversations, it's not us against them, it's not them against us. And I think that if we engage these conversations with love, <coughs> compassion, we approach people in a way that they, with respect, in a way that they would want to be treated. What I've learned is, is that when I approach people in those ways, and, and, and when we have these conversations, and I come with a, hey man, I want to understand your position. I want to understand where you're coming from. I want to listen to you. I want to share life with you. When I approach people in those ways, they are so open to have those conversations. And it's like that anywhere in the world. Anywhere you go in the world and you talk to people about other belief systems, as long as you approach them in a respectful, loving, caring way, they will listen. I've also learned that in these conversations that it is not about winning an argument. It's not about winning an argument. A lot of us maybe even came tonight and you knew what the topic was going to be. And so you're thinking, yeah, man, I'm going to get me some good ammunition so I can go back and slam my Muslim friends about what Jesus says and, and about how they're wrong, right? And that's not how it is. And, you know, I found myself at times in conversations with Christians as I'm having these conversations. I'm like, yeah, well, they believe this and they believe this. And we're kind of getting all hyped up and, and getting all kind of, you know, getting into all this stuff and why they're wrong and why we're right and all this kind of stuff. And then I found that now I'm sitting across the table from a Muslim and we're having this conversation. And as we're having this conversation, I'm like, hold on a second. This is a person. This is a person. This is a person with a soul who God deeply loves and deeply cares about. 
And then all of a sudden, it's not about this arrogant conversation about me being right and them being wrong. It's about us being able to connect with one another. To, the relationship builds a bridge. And I've been fortunate enough over the last 10 years or so to lead quite a few uh, Muslims to Christ. Friends of mine. People that were not my friends that ended up becoming my friends. People just in conversations. People in my ministry. People that have come by. And, and, and every time it is because you recognize them as a person. As a person that God deeply loves and deeply cares about. And you want to engage them with the truth of who Jesus is. So I want us to start with that right off the bat. And I want you to know that this conversation is not meant to be exhaustive. We're not going to talk about everything that, uh, uh, everything that is believed in Islam. We're not going to address every single question. We're not going to address every single answer. We're not going to address everything in there. We don't have the time to do that. We're not going to talk through all the history of it and all that. But I do want to hit some specific things along the way that I think are important for you to know and will help you out in your conversations with people around you um, that, that, are, are of, that are of this faith. So if you have your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 16. You say, well, we're talking about Islam. Why in the world are we going to the Bible? Well, it gets its foundations in the Bible. If you go to Genesis chapter 16, I want to read the story to you. Now, this is the story of Abraham. And let me give you a little, uh, uh, little picture of what's going on. God has promised Abraham that he's going to make him a great nation. He's called him out of the land that he's in. He told him to go to this place he's going to show him. And so Abraham picks up his life. He's heading to this place he's showing him. And, and he has all this stuff, everything he could ever possibly want. And, God, and he says to God, God, but, but you say all these things, but you haven't given me a, a son. And God promises Abraham a son. And years pass, and Abraham and Sarah, his wife, start to get a little bit impatient because they have not had this son yet that God had promised them. So they said, well, you know, why don't we try to take things in our, to our own hands? And so Sarah goes to her, her Egyptian slave servant, and she goes and she gives her over to Abraham in order for Abraham to have a son through her. Now, Abraham does not fight her on this. Just saying, he doesn't. And I want to read you the story. This is what it says, verse 16, or chapter 16. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed with Sarah and said, so after Abram, so, uh, Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Of course he did. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took, uh, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband uh, to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarah said to, Ab said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram says. said, do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Now in verse 7, look, notice what it says. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road of Shur and said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, mistress Sarai, she answered. The angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too num numerous for you to count. 
The angel of the Lord also told her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard you in your misery. And then notice what he says in verse 12, uh, the angel says about the posture that Ishmael will take. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hands will be against everyone and everyone's hands against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave, this name to the, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why uh, the well called whatever is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the, uh, gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Basically, what has happened here in this story is that Abram has disobeyed God. Uh, Sarah's disobeyed God. Um, they take, uh, he takes Hagar, the Egyptian slave of his wife. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. And as a result, she has this son. His name is Ishmael. Now, during this whole time, uh, Sarah is a little bit jealous because she couldn't get pregnant. And now her slave girl is pregnant. And there's a little bit of hostility, a little bit of jealousy going on there. And so, uh, so Sarah starts treating her bad. So she runs away and an angel comes to her and says, listen, I'm going to make a great nation out of your son. You're to name him Ishmael. But for the rest of his life. And for generations to come, there's going to be this conflict. There's going to be this warring that is going to go on between, between his descendants and the descendants of Abram on that side of the family, between his brothers. And we know that then Abram, his name was changed to Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. And that we know that through Isaac, the nation of Israel was born. And we know that through Ishmael, the Arabic uh, nation and world was born. And for all of history, pretty much from this point on, there has always been conflict between the people of, of, of Ishmael and the people of Isaac, the descendants of them out of Abraham. And we see this even today. It's an ongoing battle. When people talk about peace in the Middle East, they're fooling themselves. You cannot solve something that the Bible has already clearly told us will always be a problem. There are people in Israel, the Palestinians, who want to destroy the people of Israel. And the people of Israel want to destroy the people of Palestine. There are countries around the world, Arabic countries around the world, that want to destroy Israel. That talk about it openly. It's on the TV. It's on the news. They talk about it all the time. This is a consistent battle that goes on. And we see it taking its roots all the way back in the story of Abraham. And so I want to talk through a little bit. I just want to give you a little bit of that history of, of kind of the root of where these people came from. And so, so then um, uh, later on you have uh, Muhammad uh, around 600 A.D. Um, he, uh, he, uh, he begins to, uh, he's traveling to Mecca, he's traveling to Medina, he's traveling through Jerusalem. These are all holy places for uh, people who are under Islam. And so what happens is, is that through this process, um, Muhammad, who, who couldn't, could not write, read, could not write, he was illiterate, uh, dictated through his wife's the Quran, which is the holy book of, of, of Muslims, which this is the Quran. This is my copy of the Quran, which I've read. Uh, and, and read, it, read it through all the way through once. I've read it a lot of parts of it many times. 
And, uh, and so, uh, and so, the, so they, he wrote the Quran, and then he also has these other writings called, uh, that, that are put under nine volumes called the Hadith. And this is where they get their scriptures from, their ideas of how things are going to happen. Now, if you're taking notes there, I want you to notice there's some similarities between Islam and Christianity. There's similarities between us. What is the truth between us? Well, there's similarities. The first is this. The Quran teaches a high view of God. And the Quran teaches a high view of Jesus. A lot of people don't realize that Islam puts a high view of Jesus. In fact, they think Jesus was the greatest prophet to ever live, second only to Muhammad. They hold Jesus to a high esteem. They believe that God created the universe. They believe God is creator. In fact, I would even submit to you that Muslims believe more truths sometimes about Christianity than even people who call themselves Christians. How many people call themselves Christians and do not believe that God created? Muslims believe in a heaven and they believe in a hell. They believe in, they believe that, they believe that Adam, they believe that Noah, they believe that Moses, they believe that Jonah, they believe that Abraham, they believe that Jesus were all great prophets. All great prophets. They talk about all of them inside of the Quran. In fact, Muhammad, uh, writing 600 years after the New Testament was written and many years after the Old Testament was written, would have known all of the stories of the Bible and had probably read some of it himself or had heard stories about Jesus along the way in order to infuse it into what he teaches in the Quran. So there are tons of similarities. They believe that uh, Jesus was born of a virgin. Muslims believe that Jesus was born of a virgin just like us as Christians. They believe that Jesus is coming back. There's tons of similarities between us and Muslims. The cool part about that is, is that when we begin to talk about Jesus, and I'll talk about this a little later on in our conversation, that going back to the words of Jesus is a great way to have a conversation with a Muslim because they believe the words of Jesus. But even though there's all these similarities between us, there's also differences between us. There are major differences between us. In fact, I'll just give you a few. The first is this. Islam is works-based. A Muslim believes that God is good, and they believe that they are not. And so as a result, they have to do enough good works in their life in order to appease God because of the bad works in their life, because they're not good. It's all about performance. It's all about trying to earn God, to earn God's uh, favor, to earn God's permission to be with him, to earn God because God, God is, is not near to them. God is out there. So it's all about earning. It's all about works. In fact, they believe that, that there would, there's a dean or an angel that they, they count, you know, man, these are the good deeds and these are the bad deeds. And so a lot of things in, in a Muslim's life, they're trying to be devout. They're trying to do good things, good things that the Quran says are good because they want, they want to live a good life. They want to follow the five pillars of Islam so that they can make things right with God. But then when you go to and you have the conversation about Christianity, Christianity is different. Even though a lot of Christians live as if Christianity is works-based, as if we've got to earn the favor of God, Christianity is grace-based. It's grace-based. Christianity isn't about works. It isn't about law. It's about grace. 
It's that, yes, you're not good and God is good. And so there is no good that you could ever do to bridge the gap between you and God. No amount of good deeds that you could do could ever earn God's favor because not one sin could ever be in the presence of a holy, just, and amazing God. So God, in His gracious love offers us salvation so that we receive something that we do not deserve. That's what grace is. We don't deserve salvation, but God in his great love and compassion sends his son Jesus to this earth to live a sinless life. God in the flesh, Jesus lives a sinless life, is tempted in every way yet without sin, goes to the cross, dies on the cross for our sins in my place, in your place, substituted his life for me, substituted his life for you so that we could have eternal life through him. We believe in grace. The salvation is a free gift that all we have to do is receive it by putting our faith in him, by believing in him. The second thing that Muslims believe is they believe that Allah is distant. Allah is distant. He is uncertain. He is unknowable. He's elusive. Uh, he's out there. We are here. The Bible teaches that God is near to us. That God understands our hurts. He understands what we're going through in our lives. He loves us. He sacrificed for us. God is near to us. He calls us his children. As we, he is our heavenly father, he looks at us as like a father to his sons and a father to his daughters. There's this nearness. There's this relationship. In Islam, it's, it's never about a relationship. You cannot have a relationship with Allah. In fact, the Bible, or the Bible, the Quran says that Allah has no children. That if you call yourself a Muslim, you are not a child of Allah. The Bible tells us that if you are a Christian, you are a child of God. Allah is out there. We are here. In Christianity, Jesus is right here with us. God is right here with us. The next thing, the next difference is this. No matter how devout you are in Islam, there is no certainty that God will accept you into heaven. No matter how devout, no matter how good you think you are, there is no certainty that God will allow you, that Allah will allow you into heaven. In fact, if you ask a Muslim about, uh, about their faith and you say, hey, do you know if you're going to go to heaven? Like you call yourself a Muslim, are you going to go to heaven? They would say this, if Allah wills. In fact, the most devout of Muslims would say this. They would say, I can live my entire life in the best way that I possibly can, but at the end of the day, if Allah is having a bad day and I die and I go instead, I can not go to heaven. I cannot go to heaven. There is no certainty for salvation. In Christianity, there is great certainty in salvation. In fact, the Bible tells us clearly, John 3, 16, Jesus tells us, and use the words of Jesus with someone when you're having that conversation. Jesus tells us in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Listen, that whosoever, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That if you believe in him, you are given the promise of eternal life. The Bible tells us in John chapter 14 that Jesus is talking to the disciples. He says, listen, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back and get you so that you can be where I am. That all of God's children go to be where he is. That's what the Bible teaches us. And we believe that deeply. The next difference is this. Nowhere in the Quran does it talk about Allah's love. Allah does not love. 
in the Bible, the Bible is littered. Littered with the truth that God loves us and that God is love. In the Quran, Jesus is just a prophet. Jesus is just a prophet. Just a prophet in a list of prophets. A great prophet at that, but he's just a prophet. In Christianity, we believe, we believe that Jesus is God. God in the flesh. He's the second person of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That he is fully divine. Jesus says himself in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. In John 8, 58, he says, before Abraham was, I am. Listen, I predated Abraham because before Abraham ever was, I am. How can Jesus predate Abraham if Jesus wasn't born till thousands of years after Abraham was born? The reason is because Jesus was, is God and Jesus has always been God and he eternally existed before Abraham was ever even born on the planet. That's the reason in John chapter 1 it begins and it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and listen, and the Word was God. In the beginning. Then, then he goes down to verse 14 and says this, And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among men. He's talking about Jesus. So Jesus is the word. So now back, back up. In the beginning was the word, Jesus. And the word was with God, Jesus, in the beginning. And the word was God. Jesus was God. And all throughout Scripture, we see the truth that Jesus is God. Jesus tells us plainly. Jesus says all of these things himself. He claims to be God. It is one of the reasons and the main reason why he was killed. It was blasphemy. He claimed to be God. It's Jesus' words. So, these are some of the similarities, some of the differences. And so I want to kind of change focus real quick for a minute. And I want to talk a little bit about how do we address Muslims? How do we address them in these conversations? When we're having conversations about faith, when we're having conversations about this kind of stuff, how do you have those conversations? Well, the first thing I would say is never fight or argue. And if the conversation goes in that direction, you need to walk away. That if it gets hostile, walk away. And I would say that about any conversation, whether that's with someone of any belief system different than yours, whether that's atheism, whether that's Mormonism, whatever that happens to be, if, the, if tensions are high, no progress will be made. Walk away. Say, hey, listen, this is just not appropriate for this conversation. And what I've found is, is that it is easier to find the truth between you and them when you are talking to humans and not ideologies. And this is what I mean by that. Muslim, Muslims are people. Islam is an ideology. It's kind of what I was addressing at the beginning. Relationships build these bridges that ideas cannot cross. I've found, uh, I've found that in these conversations that if you don't get this right, you begin, if you, if, you, if you don't approach it this way, you begin to make these big generalizations about a group of people and you begin to demonize them because you disagree with what they believe in. And that is not how Jesus approached things when he was on earth. It's not how Jesus had conversations with people. It's not how Jesus had conversations with people that were way different than him. People that did not believe the way he believed. Think about the woman at the well. Think about the woman called in adultery. Think about Zacchaeus. Think about people that Jesus had conversations with and how he had those conversations. That completely dismantled and disarmed them. And it all began with the way that he approached them, the way he loved them, the way he valued them as people. That it wasn't about what they believed, it was about the fact that he loved them because they were a person. 
And when you see people as a person versus they're different than me, it makes all the difference in the world. The second thing I would say is this when you're addressing a Muslim. Let your life speak the message that your mouth speaks. It's like the old saying, you know, actions speak louder than words, and that is true. But in this situation, what I would say is that sometimes when we say actions speak louder than words, we forget the fact that words speak too. And so you should live your life in such a way that represents Jesus, but you should also talk to them about Jesus, give the truth to them about Jesus. The Bible says in Romans 10, how can they hear if no one's preaching? So you have to give them the message. You have to tell them the truth. You have to talk to them about a relationship with Christ. It's so important that you get that because I think that, uh, especially when you're having conversations with Muslims, many of them are very devout. And so they're praying five times a day and they see you not praying at all. And they go, hold on a sec, you talk about you love your God, but I don't see anything in your life that lines up saying that you love your God. You talk about Christianity as if it's truth, but nothing in your life looks like the Jesus Christ that you claim to be following. And if you don't get that, that's going to be a difficult way. Uh, it's gonna be, you're you're going to have an uphill battle, and you're never going to be able to uh, engage them in those conversations. The third thing, which I mentioned a minute ago, was this. They revere the words of Jesus, so use them. They revere the words of Jesus, so use them. So, for example, they will say if Allah wills, they don't know who's going, they don't know who's going to heaven, but they know who's not going to heaven. If you ask a Muslim who is not going to heaven, they'll say things like, well, murderers don't go to heaven adulterers don't go to heaven. And they will begin to list off all the things. Liars don't. They will begin to list off all these things of people that don't go to heaven. They, know who does, who, they can't know who does, but they will, they will tell you who can't. They say, okay, well, let's take that for a minute. Murderers don't go to heaven. Do you consider yourself a murderer? No. Well, Jesus tells us that if you've ever hated anyone in your heart, it is if you have committed murder in your heart. You ever hated anyone in your heart before? Well, yeah, I mean... Yeah, I've done that before. You ever looked at a woman lustfully before? I mean, Jesus says that if you look at a woman lustfully, as if you've committed adultery with her in her heart. You believe Jesus was a prophet, right? Yes, I do. Do you believe the words of Jesus? Yes, I do. That's what Jesus says. Those are the conversations that you have. And let me tell you something. They light up when you begin to talk about the words of Jesus. I've had these conversations, many of these conversations with Muslims. And once we get to talking about Jesus, it is, that is one commonality that a lot of us don't believe that we have. We have this conversation about Jesus. In fact, the Koran even tells us, the Koran uh, 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 says that the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, the Psalms, and the Gospels were all given by God. The Koran tells us that. The Koran believes uh, says that the books of Moses, which are in the Bible, the Psalms, which are in the Bible, as well as the Gospels, were all given by God. So they believe some of the truths that are in the Bible. In fact, um, I can even show you. And in the they have uh, uh, in the Quran, it is by surahs. So they have like Surah four thirty four, Surah four thirty five. That Surah is the chapter four, and then thirty five. That's that's kind of how the chapters are broken up in the Quran. And so it says this. It says, it says, and. Uh, and uh, it says in Surah, um, in Surah 4, 163, it says, And we have, sent, we have sent the inspiration as we sent it to Noah and the messengers after him. We sent inspiration to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and the tribes. 
to Jesus, Job, Jonah, Aaron, and Solomon, and to David, we gave the Psalms. I mean, that sounds like a Bible verse. It doesn't sound like the Koran. See, there's a lot of truth between us. And if you can wiggle around and get to that truth and begin to have this conversation, you wouldn't believe some of the stuff that would come out. It's pretty powerful. One of the biggest hang-ups for a Muslim is that they believe that the Bible is tainted. That Muhammad tells in the Quran that, that, they had to, uh, that he is writing the Quran in order to correct the mistakes that are in the Bible. They believe that the Bible was tainted. And so this is a great conversation to have with them because there's more evidence to show us that the, what we have in the Bible is true and what we have in the Bible is actually what was written based on the numbers of copies of ancient manuscripts, over 24,000 of them before Muhammad was ever even born and came on this earth that we have today in our possession over 24,000 of these documents and manuscripts of the Bible before he was ever even born that we know and we can have full confidence in that the Bible that we're reading today is exactly the Bible that was written. And we also believe that God went along and protected his word in the addition, in the, in the editing of, or as it went along, that it was not edited, that it was kept the way that, that God wanted it to be. This is a big hang-up for them. So, uh, so this is a good, uh, uh, that's a good conversation to have. We've talked about some similarities. We've talked about some differences. We've talked about some of the questions. And uh, I want to talk to you. The last thing I want to talk to you about is this. The fourth thing is Islam, the side most Muslims don't know. Now, when uh, these next couple of weeks are going to be a little different because, like, I'm, I'm more of a, a preacher. And these are more of, like, teaching lessons. So I'm trying to teach you the truth about this kind of stuff in a teaching sort of format, and, uh, and when we get to this last point, I want to tell you that, um, that this last point is so important for you to hear. So I don't know what you got going on right now, but I want you to lock in just for a minute. Because the last point is Islam, what most Muslims don't know. The truth is, is that most Muslims do not know what the Quran says, just like most Christians do not know what the Bible says. Let me say that again. Most Muslims do not know what the Quran says, just like most Christians do not know what the Bible says. In fact, if I was to give out a Bible test right now, some of you would be like, oh crap. But you would call yourself a Christian. And it is dangerous when you begin to believe in a system or a philosophy or a religion and you do not know what that religion, philosophy, or belief system even is. And so like some people who call themselves Christians, and I say call themselves Christians because I don't believe that everyone who calls themselves a Christian is a Christian. But many people are born into Muslim families in countries where it is the only religion. It is ran by that religion. That country is ran by, by Islam. It is under Sharia law, which we'll talk a little bit about in a minute. 
It is, it, is, uh, it is all they've known their entire lives. Bibles are not allowed to be in these countries. No other system of theology, no other system or philosophy are even allowed into the systems, into the school systems to be, for them to even be educated on what those systems or beliefs even mean. This is all they know. And that's what most Muslims are. In fact, there are 1.2 billion Muslims on this earth and maybe even more now. 1.2 billion of the population of the world. And only about one-sixth of those even know Arabic. And you are not even allowed to read the Quran unless it's in Arabic. So most Muslims can't even read the Quran because the Quran is in Arabic. Now you say, how do you read it? <laughs> This is actually the Arabic's on one side and the English is on the other side. And so that's how I read it. <laughs> I read it in English. But they would say, well, that doesn't count. That it only counts if it's in Arabic. Well, since most can't read it in Arabic, they don't know what it says and they can't know what it says. So I want to lay that down for you as some foundation before we get into this conversation because I want you to know that this is so important for this world and for our society and for the United States and when you're hearing things on the news and when you're hearing things in all these different places, you need to know that. Because the truth is, and I put this down, these Muslims are not terrorists. They have no intentions of hurting anyone. They are just following a religion. They have no idea the claims of the Quran. All they want to do is they want to find their way to God. And they believe with all their heart that if they can just do some good stuff and pray five times a day, then they can get themselves to God. They are just trying to find a way to God. They are not bad people. I mean, they are in the sense of the Bible tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But they are not out there like trying to figure out how to take you out. You know what I'm saying? But that is not what the Quran teaches. That is not what the Quran teaches. And I've read it. The Quran teaches that you are to kill infidels. And an infidel is anyone who is not a Muslim. When someone flies a plane into a building and blows up a whole bunch of people, it is considered holy in the Quran. You say, no, 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 I heard this Muslim on TV say that that, that's not what our religion is. That's, that's Islamic extremism. No, that is Islamic purist. That is Islamic to the Quran. That's why ideals can be dangerous. Muslims aren't dangerous. Islam can be dangerous. Let me tell you what the Quran says. And I wrote just a few things down here. The Quran says, uh, the Quran says that... Um, That a woman is considered half that of a man. So in the court of law, two women equal one man. So if two women say, this guy did this, and this guy said, no, I didn't, they throw it out of court because you're considered half a man. Uh, a woman is, uh, uh, women are pretty subjected in the Islamic culture. And you say, well, that's not true. I have an Islamic friend. His, his family's not like that. Listen, go look at Islamic countries around the world and see how their women are treated. 
You think they're covered up for a reason? Oh, they are. They are oppressed. They are slaves. If a woman gets to go to heaven, she gets to serve a man in heaven for the rest of her life. That's her job. That's what you get to look forward to. In fact, in Surah 434 in the Quran, it says this. If you fear disloyalty from your wife, you're to refuse to share the bed with her, which is a big deal because a wife is required to sleep with her husband so many times per month. And he can divorce her if she doesn't do that. And all he has to do to divorce her is to say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you three times, and it's done. That's it. And so it's a manipulative thing. You can refuse to share the bed with her. And it goes on and says, and you can beat her. Men are permitted to beat their wives in the Quran. If you think I'm kidding, look up Surah 434 in the Quran. So the Quran teaches these things. It's not Islamic extremism. It is, it is sticking to the truths of what they teach. Men are allowed to have a muta in every city of the world. A muta is pretty much a prostitute. He can have four wives, and he can have a muta in any city of the world. And it's not considered cheating. It's not considered bad because he's on business and he's out of town and she doesn't have to know about it type of thing. The interesting thing about it is, is that Muhammad, Muhammad says in the Quran that you can only have four wives, but Muhammad himself had around 50, one of, uh, and many of which were very young, and one of which was nine years old when he married her. Which is why in some Islamic countries today, right now today, in 2014, you are still allowed as a Muslim man to marry a woman before she reaches the age of puberty. True story. You didn't know that happened in our world today? Yeah, oh yeah, that's a law in some countries. So what happens is, is that when we begin to look at what the, the Quran teaches, and we know, that, we know that Muhammad was a general in a military. Muhammad killed many people. Not only did he kill many people, but he, he sent people out to kill many people. You can look up all kinds of stuff on Muhammad and, and what he did in his conquest as he conquered people, which is why even today we have these militant groups that are trying to conquer through force these countries in the name of Islam, in the name of Allah. They believe it's their moral duty because of what the Quran says. In fact, the language is, is pretty rough in a lot of these particular conversations. Like in Surah to 191 it says this and slay them wherever you catch them and turn them out from where they have turned you out listen to this for tumult and oppression are worse than slaughter but fight them and he goes on and tells them not to fight in the mosque or in all this kind of stuff and it says and when you fight them slay them he's talking about people who are not of the faith of, of Islam that's what he's talking about in the Quran And what happens is, is that we don't understand what's going on around the world because all we see is what's going on in our own little social media account. Let me tell you what's going on around the world. Yesterday, I'm sorry, today, today in Hilla, Iraq, jihadist, which means struggle or holy war, today in Iraq, um, they bombed, some Muslims bombed a hospital and they killed a bunch of medical students today. Yesterday, in Nigeria, Borno, Nigeria, 
a wave of barbaric attacks on three villages by Boko Haram Islamists, which if you don't know who Boko Haram are, these are the guys who just kidnapped like hundreds of girls, teenage girls, and they had them captive. And our country's getting involved in all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of a crazy thing. They go in these villages, they kill the men, and they kidnap the women, and they take them with them. And yesterday, they attacked three different villages, and they killed over 200 people yesterday. Yesterday, also in Iraq, a man and his wife and their two children were brutally murdered in their home by Al-Qaeda. Yesterday, as well, in another part of Iraq, an Al-Qaeda suicide bomber murdered eight civilian volunteers trying to protect their families. Yesterday, in Pakistan, um, some uh, Islamists bombed a van full of, of people and killed seven people. The day before yesterday, in Nigeria, Islamists fired through the windows of a church and they killed 20 people worshiping inside. Open Doors, which is a non-denominational group that talks about persecuting Christians around the world. Last year, the number doubled of Christian martyrs in the world. Almost all of them were in Muslim countries. 1,200 Christians were martyred for their faith in Syria alone. In all of these countries, Sharia law or Islamic law is at place. I tell you that because most Muslims don't know that about Islam, and they don't know that about the Quran. And I don't think that most Muslims are violent and terrorist and bad people, I think like most Christians, they don't know what the Bible says and they don't know what the Quran says. And we get an opportunity to share the love of Christ with them. And I, I, I'm kind of, I'm short on time, but, but I want to show you something. There's a guy, his name's Musab Hassan Youssef. He, his dad was the militant leader, the number one guy in Hamas. Hamas is the Palestinian Al-Qaeda sort of type of group. It would, be like, it would be like Osama bin Laden's son, this guy. And this guy was a terrorist. He worked for Hamas. He was all, you know, doing all the stuff in Hamas. When he was 20 years old, he was arrested. He was put in prison by Israel. He was in an Israeli prison at 20 years old. Uh, during that time, he watched while he was in prison. And obviously, he's a high-up person in the organization because his dad is the number one guy in the organization. His dad is the Osama bin Laden of the organization. During this time, he saw... In prison, his Hamas organization, because inside of the prison, like gangs in America, they were kind of like a gang in the prison. He saw them brutalizing other people and inmates inside of the prison, even their own Hamas people, because they would say that they were traitors or that they were trying to steal information. And he saw this, and it bothered him so much that he began to question this whole deal. So the Israelis pulled him out. And they began to talk to him, and every all the propaganda and stuff that he'd been told his whole life about how they're brutal, how they're brutal, and how they they don't care about education, and they don't care about your religion, and they don't care about all this kind of stuff. He said these Israelis would sit with him, and it'd be time for prayer, and they'd say, "Hey, yeah, go pray, go pray, go do your thing. We don't want to take away from what you want to do." And he said that they just they just kind of just kind of invite him in. And then they said, "You know, we we want to send you to school. We want you to get educated." 
So he went and he studied and he went and got educated. For six years, he studied religion. And he's now a devout follower of Jesus. And there's a mark on his head for his life. He made a comment in one interview that I saw. He said he lives in California now and he's in asylum in the United States. He says, I will go back and tell my family and those people about Jesus. And if they kill me, they kill me. But I got to do what I got to do. My people need to know about Jesus. So I thought I'd show you a little bit of an interview with someone who grew up their entire life as a Muslim, who knows the Quran front and back, who has, knows it in Arabic, who speaks Arabic and all that kind of stuff, and has grown up in that part of the world. Would you guys like to see that? Yes, please. Check this out. Um, all the time I thought that the problem in Muslims or the problem in terrorists as... Um, all the time I thought that the problem in Muslims or the problem in terrorists as some, uh, many people here in the United States think. And uh, unfortunately this is, uh, this is not the truth. The problem is in Islam itself. I know that what I'm saying now is politically incorrect and uh, many people uh, find this uh, offending, even Christians sometimes. But all I can say that this is the reality and this is the real nature of Islam. Forget about what I say about Islam and forget about what Americans or even Muslims says, say about Islam. Let's say what Islam says about itself. Let's see, does the Quran mandate killing? Did Muhammad the prophet, the prophet, he's not prophet. You know why? Not because uh, he's not prophet regarding to the Bible, because he's a prophet without prophecy. Can you believe that? Like Muhammad claims that he's a prophet and he died before he told, before he told his people the prophecy. <laughs> Ask. Prophecy conference, huh? Prophecy conference. And we're talking about prophecies, and we know what prophecy means. And we ask any Muslim, what's the prophecy of Muhammad? They will not have an answer. And by the way, they never thought of that. They just call him a prophet. A prophet without a miracle. You know what's his miracle? He flew on a donkey from Mecca to Jerusalem in the dark during the night. And the donkey was the only witness. <laughs> we tell them, we tell them, guys, you know, usually the prophets and like Jesus Christ, he did miracles in front of thousands of people, you know, to witness the glory of God and the great work of the Lord. But your prophet did the miracle, this great miracle of like, imagining like a donkey taken off from LAX. Like, it, you know, if, if there are like 5,000 people witnessing that, I would say, okay, this is a miracle. But unfortunately, in Muhammad's case, the donkey was the only witness. And so, the, uh, back, back to the point, we ask about this prophet. Did he kill himself? Did he kill non-Muslims or people who didn't believe in his message? 
The answer is yes, he killed. Did he ask his followers to kill? Yes, he did. Did he rape? Yes, he did. We're talking about a prophet, but at the same time, he's a rapist. Did he marry? Mary. It's a marriage. Nine years old child. Yes, he did. It's in the Islamic books, and every Muslim admits uh, this fact. So, if this is the real nature of Islam, why it's controversial? Why people don't face the reality? Why Muslims are ashamed? It seems that Muslims don't know about their religion. And I tell you that Muslims really don't know about Islam. Because we have 1.5 billion Muslims in the world. 300 millions of them only speak Arabic, which is the language of the Quran. Mm. And 1.2 billion don't speak even Arabic. And they just follow Islam for the idea of the one God. This is the only thing. And uh, they believe in the lies of Muhammad. And this is why we find all this violence. And we look at most terrorist attacks and we connect it all the time to Islam or to Muslims. And we still question, is it about uh, uh, those people who don't understand Islam? No, no, it's about Islam itself. It's in the Quran, it's mandated. Muhammad did it. And Muhammad is the highest, excuse me, is the highest example or model for Muslims. And you see when the cartoon, the Danish cartoon artist, what he did, and uh, even uh, uh, two months ago, South Park, mm -hmm. they uh, made all this like big problem because there was a cartoon for Muhammad. Why is that? Because Muslims don't, the rest of the world to see the real nature of Islam or the real nature of, of Muhammad, of their prophet. They're ashamed of that. And I think this is the time that Muslims need to face the reality. Mm. If this is the real nature of Islam, they have to be honest about it and stop giving, gov uh, giving uh, cover uh, uh, to the ugly face of, uh, of Islam. Mm. You know, one of the things that um, is in your book, you talk about um, moderate Muslim and that's kind of been the, the way the, uh, the card that we get to pass in America and say, well, they're just moderate and they're not, they're not violent or whatever. But I thought you brought out a great point that the moderate Muslim, I believe your words, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, was they're just the uninformed Muslim of the Quran. Is that correct or something to that nature? Yes. As, as, as I said, most Muslims read the Quran and they don't understand it. I spent many years. Uh, to study Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, if I can compare this uh, to the dark ages when the Bible was in uh, uh, Greek and uh, it wasn't translated to uh, uh, the street languages. Mm -hmm. uh, Muslims don't use, uh, even the, one, uh, the ones who speak Arabic, don't use the language of the Quran as a daily language. So uh, when uh, they uh, read the Quran, they can read it, but they don't understand it. And uh, um, yes, most Muslims are, inf uh, are not uh, informed of mm -hmm. the uh, uh, real nature of the Quran and uh, Islam. There are traditional Muslims, but I believe that they are more dangerous because they give the real cover mm -hmm. for uh, um, uh, Islam and uh, terrorism. Yes.
I want to close with this. I hear people say to me as a pastor at times, and I have through the years, man, like, there goes another mosque up in our community. There goes another temple, and there goes another this or another that. Man, what is our nation coming to? And there's all of these religions and belief systems and all this kind of stuff popping up around us. I mean, are we not a Christian nation? And I would say historically, historically we are a Christian nation, if you want to say that. But statistically, we're not. Statistically, we're in the minority as far as people, uh, as far as Christians. Christians are not the majority in our nation. So it doesn't offend me when someone says we're not a Christian nation because we're not a Christian nation. But this is what I would say. I would say that our failure as the church to go reach people around the world for Jesus, I think God is saying, hey, you know what? Since you won't go reach them over there, I'm going to put them in, their, in your backyard. So you have no way to run away from them so that you have to walk over to them and build a relationship with them and have a conversation with them and tell them about the love of Christ because the truth is is that I love it when I see those things going up in my community because it's another opportunity for us to engage people with the truth about Jesus people who otherwise would not know the truth and as they move here we have an opportunity to do that. I mean, we live in a city like Atlanta that's a melting pot. There's people of all kinds of different nationalities and, and, and belief systems and all this kind of stuff. And, man, you have the truth. You have Jesus. You know about the grace of God through Jesus, a relationship, a real relationship. And you get to share that with other people. And I want to challenge you to do that. I want to challenge you. If anything happens in this series and it gets you thinking about telling your faith and sharing your faith with other people and learning more about what you believe and why you believe what you believe in success. So on the band come up. We're going to close this out in the time of worship tonight and uh, with, with one song here. And, man, I just want you just to, I want you just to think about, man, maybe people that, that you know in your life that don't know Christ and that you know you need to be being honest with them and open with them and sharing with them and having that, that conversation with them. Maybe there's others of you that, man, you've been debating and you've been just butting heads. And it's all about winning an argument. And it's not about, like, you know, winning the person and building a relationship with the person. And you just need to repent. You just need to say, hey, God, man, I'm sorry for that. And I need to change that. And you maybe need to go apologize to some people in order to uh, begin those conversations again. Whatever it happens to be, I hope that you would continue to study, that you would continue to learn, that you would continue to dive into the Bible, that you would learn more about what you believe and why you believe what you believe. So, Father, I just want to pray over our students right now and our adults. I just ask, God, that you would open up opportunities in our lives for us to be able to share your love with other people and to share your message with other people. And so, Father, I just ask that you would work in us and through us, that you would change us, that we would be challenged by you. And, uh, God, that, uh, that tonight... Um, Lord, that our faith would just be encouraged and spurred on. And, uh, Lord, that this next week would just be an amazing week as we chase after you and all that we do, Lord, that we would every day have an awareness of your goodness, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.